Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison and it is my great pleasure to be with you on this Sunday, the 18th of September, 2022. The weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday is a royal funeral free zone. That's right. Despite insiders devoting a significant proportion of its show to the passing and funeral and pageantry and processions and all the other elements that make up the unfortunate passing of Queen Elizabeth II, we will not be doing that here on the Week on Wednesday Weekend Wrap. Instead, we will focus on the very short period of time that insiders talked about the economy, and in particular, the Reserve Bank's view of the economy. Because since we last spoke with Van on Wednesday, for the Week on Wednesday, there has been a lot of movement on the economic front. Quite frankly, the Australian economy is not in as robust a position as it should be. Now, this is fundamentally due to problems with core economic policies that the Labor government has inherited after a decade of mismanagement and rotting and profiteering by the Liberals and their mates. The Reserve Bank of Australia Governor, Philip Lowe, presented to the Economics Committee this week. And quite frankly, what he had to say was shocking in many, many ways. First and foremost, he says wages are not driving inflation, but he believes in some industries there has been an increase in margins. This, of course, totally aligns with what we see coming out of research by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. That is to say that there are record levels of profits. Profits make up an increasing part of GDP. Wages make up a decreasing part of GDP. The money going to workers in the form of wages is decreasing, while the amount of money going to companies in the form of profits has been increasing. Basically, he said, this is Phil Blow, that companies shouldn't be using the inflation situation to profiteer. Of course, they are doing that. We know they're doing that. We're seeing that happen again and again. He says there are three main drivers of inflation. These are all things we know. The drivers of inflation are supply side, that is the input costs, they are wages, uh, and they are margins or profits. There are two of those things that are driving the problems in our economy when it comes to inflation. That is the supply side, the input costs, And that is fundamentally a result of a long period of poor government policy, government policy that relied on not training people locally, not lifting skills levels locally, on not reserving gas and fuel locally, on trading Australia off as a quarry, as a mine, as a source of other people's fuel supplies. We have created a dependency on extended supply chains that have been disrupted by pandemics and wars and other countries taking policies to put their own populations first. Of course, people who regularly listen to The Week on Wednesday will have heard me rail against Australia's fuel reserve policy that saw large quantities of Australia's emergency fuel supply stored in the United States. It was good to see this week Chris Bowen bringing some of that 
diesel additive, AdBlue, that is so vital to keeping trucks on the road here in Australia, investing in having that created here at home. Of course, these are all things that we would hope to be transitioning away from as we decarbonize our economy. Now, we will still need to do that. There's no question about that. But in the short term, in the immediate term, we have to have trucks on the road because we have to get food to people. We have to get supplies to and from and around our country. We cannot simply shut down trucking. This is part of the inflation problem in this country. There's no question that normally in the past, wages have been part of the inflation equation. But Philip Lowe made clear to the parliament this week that we're not seeing wages drive inflation. And of course, we're not seeing it because any examination of the situation on wages makes it very clear. Wages are being cut. And in fact, Philip Lowe has suggested that workers will probably experience more cuts to wages at the same time as workers experience cuts to the value of their homes. This is an outrageous set of economic fundamentals. We want working people to experience wage cuts, working people to lose value in their homes. At the same time, Philip Lowe put forward the proposition that because people had saved money during the pandemic, roughly $270 billion, not a small amount by any stretch, that we would be well insulated to ride through these shocks. Of course, the problem with that is that of that $270 billion, $216 billion of it is held by the wealthiest 40% of Australians. The vast majority of Australians get less than $54 billion. So, that's spread across, spread across around 11 million people. That's just their savings. That's their nest eggs. That's what they've got for a rainy day. Now, of course, you can say, well, it is raining. There is inflation. Inflation is up. Uh, property prices are down. Uh, wages are being cut. This is a rainy day for working people. And it is. There's no question about that. It is a rainy day for working people. But it's as a result of policy decisions, partly policy decisions of the Reserve Bank. There's no question that Philip Lowe and the Reserve Bank's forecast that interest rates would not go up until 2023-24 has impacted people's decision-making. There's no question about that. The statements the Reserve Bank makes are designed to impact people's decision-making. Even his statement this week saying companies should not be profiteering on the back of the inflation issue is designed to mould people's behaviour. So yes, people took on more debt. Yes, people tried to maximise their advantage of on the idea of low interest rates for a long, long time. That, of course, has not happened. Interest rates have gone up. They're likely to continue to go up. Philip Lowe is saying now they are likely to continue to go up. He's also saying he should never have said what he said before. But, of course, there are other policy issues at play here as well. We saw this week that a record number of Australians are working multiple jobs. Now, nearly a million Australians work more than one job. And the great travesty 
of this is that the more jobs you work, the less money you're likely to earn. How does that make sense, you say? Well, it's because workers who work multiple jobs are more likely to be in insecure work, have less bargaining power, and are less able to drive up wages. Why does that make a difference? Because as Reserve Bank researchers have now publicly said, weakening worker power has resulted in lower wages. And if you are trapped in an environment where you are reliant on a few hours here and a few hours there and a few hours over here, your capacity to bargain and lift your wages is much lower. This is one of the fundamental reasons people must join your union. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, to join. Because not only are record numbers of Australians working multiple jobs, the situation here is now worse than in the United States. Only 4.8% of working Americans work multiple jobs. In Australia, that number is nearly 6.5%. Nearly 6.5% of working Australians work multiple jobs. This is a huge problem for the stability of our economy and our society. Working multiple insecure jobs means people can't plan for the future. They can't participate in community activities, can't actively participate in our democracy. Of course, while the RBA was putting out this research paper, Philip Lowe still doesn't really talk about the nature of power in how wages are set. He still prefers to talk in terms of sort of a Friebenite mathematical framework as though the old formulas that have proven to not work will somehow magically kick in. But the AFR, the boss's pamphlet, has made it very clear, very clear that they know power is fundamental to how wages are set, so much so that they're running op-eds about why insecure work is good for workers and that, in fact, multiple jobs are not a bad thing, that insecure work is not a problem, that casualization is not an issue, that we need more insecurity and that fixing insecure work, giving people regular, reliable work and incomes would somehow or another disadvantage working people. This is, of course, because the boss's pamphlet writes in the boss's interests. And it's in the boss's interest to keep the share of profits up and the share of wages down. I'll give you a very clear example. Right now, there is a home care provider to 6,000 elder Australians. This is a provider who works in the homes of older Australians that is offering lottery tickets to workers if they take on shifts. This is a sector that is riddled with insecure work, that has incredibly low wages, that has relied in the past on importing and exploiting temporary foreign workers. Now, desperate for workers to take up more shifts, they're saying you can have a ticket in a $10,000 lottery. The Health Services Union, 
the Australian Services Union, the union movement broadly, has said this is outrageous and unacceptable and not the way to deal with the issue. Of course, it's not the way to deal with the problem. The, the way we deal with these problems is we properly value the work. Instead of creating systems where profitability is the key to what are essential services, we have to create systems where service delivery, stable employment, living wages are fundamental to what we are doing in the care sector. We see it in aged care, in disability, in early childhood education. All of these sectors have these issues. You know, the boss's pamphlet, the Australian Financial Review, is so wedded to this idea that job insecurity is a good thing, that despite lottery tickets in aged care, despite massive shortages in low-paid but essential work and essential sectors, they wrote an article this week, and I shared it on social media because it was so outrageous that talked about companies using, and I quote, cheap offshore workers as a good thing for helping them retain local talent, that they would use the money they saved by offshoring work overseas to pay local workers more. It's as though they think we haven't been paying attention We've seen this over the last 40 years. The entirety of my life, this dynamic, this ideology, this philosophy, this mythology has been how the economy has run. And over the course of that time, it has gotten harder and harder and harder for working people to get ahead. None of the trickle-down benefits have flowed to working people. The only talent that's retained, in inverted commas, is at the executive level. And quite frankly, that's not talent. That's simply privilege. We see CEOs and executives getting pay increases nine times the percentage of what they offer to their workers. This is an outrageous abuse of power, offering working people pay cuts while executives take home massive increases, take home huge bonuses, take home increased values on their shares, on their options, and on their dividends. These are fundamental problems with our economic model. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. Even in the United States, the home of laissez-faire capitalism, the home of neoliberalism and Reagan and the Friedmanite School of Economics, even there, they have come to the realisation that giving working people more power will result in better economic and social outcomes. And in the state of California, they have now embraced the concept of multi-employer bargaining. Now, here in Australia, we're having that debate. The Jobs and Skills Summit made fantastic strides in that direction. And of course, we look forward to seeing legislation introduced 
that will give working people the power to come together collectively and bargain for better outcomes. So that instead of the workers taking wage cuts and the executives taking massive increases, we can have some better equilibrium in our system. And we've talked about this in this country, particularly in terms of funded sectors and the care sector, sectors like in-home aged care, as I just discussed, where there's a clearly an atomization of the workforce that would benefit from broader collective bargaining, more workers across more enterprises that are effectively doing the same work, that are effectively funded from the same places, being able to come together and bargain with actual decision makers. And there's no question we need that. But in California, they're going even further. In California, they're talking about multi-employer bargaining for fast food workers. Now, obviously, in the United States, fast food is a huge industry. And they talk about if you can get 10,000 workers who want to have a multi-employer bargain, then you can set up a multi-stakeholder council that will work through the issues of raising wages and bargaining across multiple fast food employers and outlets, that this can happen at a state level, this can happen at a local level, and in fact, you can start to have workers decide what their bargaining unit, what their collective looks like. So instead of having the boss draw circles around parts of the business, as we've seen Qantas, for example, do, where Qantas and Alan Joyce have drawn circles around the pilots, circles around international cabin crew versus circles around domestic cabin crew, circles around licensed engineers versus unlicensed engineers. In order to break up collectives of workers so that their bargaining power is weaker, Instead of that system in California, at least in fast food, they're recognizing that workers have a right to collectively identify with each other and bargain on the issues that impact them as a group. This is a huge change, a step shift change. And when you consider the issues that Philip Lowe from the RBA, from the Reserve Bank of Australia has raised, issues about our supply chain not being able to deliver what we need, at the same time as workers having very little power to actually bargain within our supply chains, that in actual fact, there are laws that make it very difficult for workers to take action at power plants or oil refineries or offshore extraction or mines, that, the, that there is very little local manufacturing uh, of a mass scale. So you have very small manufacturing uh, employers, very small manufacturing plants doing highly specialized work and workers in very small numbers unable to bargain with an employer because the downward pressure on wages is always being applied to every new contract by the head contractor, by someone further up the supply chain. So workers are unable to address the issues within the supply chain there. At the same time, profitability is 
through the roof. Profits are being extracted. Workers are not getting their fair share of it. So the solutions are there, giving workers more bargaining power, pulling some of these economic levers. Philip Lowe talked about taxes, talked about spending, talked about the profit and wage components of the economy. There is growing pressure to change the tax settings because, quite frankly, giving people who are already doing so well out of our economic system an even bigger bump, even more privilege, even more of an advantage, makes no sense. It runs counter to what we need to be doing. We've got a trillion-dollar deficit. Why are we handing out hundreds of billions of dollars in tax cuts to the already wealthy? That No one seems to be able to answer that question except to say, well, they were legislated some time ago. Circumstances have changed. They'll continue to change. And hopefully, hopefully the Labor government's position will respond to the changing economic circumstances. Because if we maintain those tax cuts to the very richest, if the richest people in our society get $10,000 tax cuts while a million Australians have to work multiple jobs just to survive, then our economy and our society is not doing what it needs to do. And that is equalize the power, equalize the opportunity, and give every Australian wherever they're from, whatever their background, an opportunity to thrive and succeed. And of course, on the spending side, we know the Morrison government wasted billions of dollars on everything from pork barrelling to defence projects that had no purpose and never got off the ground, to cancelled contracts, to gifts to donors, to even buttering up the Governor-General and it was good to see the Labor government cancel that particular contract. There's much to be done. The union movement is driving so many of these positive changes around tax, around bargaining, around workers' power, around how we fix our supply chain, how we make more things here, how we create a better Australia. And I always like to say to people, remember to join your union. It's so important. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. Also, don't forget to check out Van on Socially Democratic. Stephen Donnelly and the crew at Dunn Street do a great podcast called Socially Democratic. Van was on it this week. And also, you can hear more from Sally McManus, the leader of the Australian Trade Union Movement, with Francis Leach on their fantastic new uh, video podcast. No, I don't think that's what it's called, but anyway, uh, through Australian Unions, there are links uh, available there. And don't forget, if you're going to be in Melbourne on the 12th of October, you can catch Van and I doing the week on Wednesday live at Victorian Trades Hall on Ligon Street for the Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's going to be a fantastic evening. Tickets are selling pretty quickly, so do check that out. Again, links available. And until Wednesday, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.